Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 35A, an interview on the JFK assassination with Stephen Fagan. I'm excited to welcome Stephen Fagan to the show today. Stephen is the curator of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza. Yeah, that Dealey Plaza. This museum was once the Texas School Book Depository from which Lee Harvey Oswald shot John F. Kennedy on November 22nd, 1963. If you are listening to this podcast on the day of release, that is 60 years ago today. Stephen and I are going to talk about the assassination, its impact, and why it attracts so many doubts and conspiracy theories still to this day. Thank you for your time, Stephen. My pleasure. Let's start with the assassination itself. It was November... 1963, and John F. Kennedy was visiting Texas. Why was he visiting Texas? Well, uh, Texas was, uh, as it is today, a, a key state in any presidential election. And in 1960, Kennedy had won Texas uh, by a very slim majority, and he needed Texas again in 1964. So he was gearing up for his 1964 re-election campaign. The problem with Texas was we were beginning to see in the early 60s the political changes that are with us today. Texas had been a blue state, a democratic state, a democratic stronghold really since Reconstruction. But things were beginning to shift at that time and factions were developing, particularly in Texas, between the conservative wing of the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. and the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. We were beginning to see a shift from from blue to purple, ultimately to to red. And that was all kind of taking place here at that time, in part because of... uh, Kennedy's uh, policies towards civil rights, his support Mm -hmm. of the civil rights movement, things were shifting. So Kennedy knew that if he was going to have a solid run in 64 and have any hope of winning Texas, he had to mend some political fences and shore up support within the Democratic Party. So this was a goodwill tour, uh, taking yeah. him to San Antonio, Houston, Fort Worth, Dallas, and and on to Austin. That was the trip to Texas. Two days in uh, in um, 1963. That's a lot of Texas land in two days. And so he's there with a mission. What kind of reception did JFK get in Texas? You know, were people excited to see him? Were there threats being made against him? A bit of both. Uh, he he and Mrs. Kennedy received an overwhelming welcome, um, and I add Mrs. Kennedy there because, of course, with this being somewhat of a campaign trip, she was an essential part of that, extremely popular, Mrs. Kennedy was. Uh, this was her first public trip since the uh, death of their infant son, Patrick, oh, wow. earlier that year, yeah. and so it was a big deal that she was traveling with him, and uh, yes, thousands of people greeted them in San Antonio and uh, Houston when they arrived arrived a little before midnight in Fort Worth on Thursday the 21st. Thousands of people, nearly at midnight, were waiting out there at Carswell Air Force Base to welcome them and all along the route to the Hotel Texas where they spent the night. The next day, Kennedy got up, gave a speech in the parking lot of the Hotel Texas, then attended a breakfast in the ballroom, and then it was a 15-minute flight to Dallas Love Field, where yeah. about 4,000 people greeted Kennedy uh, when, when he arrived. Now, Dallas was the one city that they were all concerned about because Dallas mm. had already established a reputation as a conservative stronghold. Mm. There had been political incidents 
in the years leading up to Kennedy's visit that had given Dallas this reputation for being uh, kind of a toxic political environment. Lyndon Johnson had right. been um, spit on and, and, and pushed and shoved when he was here in 1960. Someone took Lady Bird Johnson's gloves and threw them in the gutter that day. This was four days before the 1960 election. And then just a month before Kennedy's visit in November of 63, the United Nations ambassador, Adlai Stevenson, had been in town and he was hit on the head and spit on uh, wow. visiting here, giving a speech on United Nations Day. And that was captured on film and in photographs, which went nationwide. So already there was this concern that, oh, you know, Dallas is kind of kind of radical, or at least that's the impression. It was a very vocal minority, not the right, not the right. mainstream of Dallas at all, but that vocal minority had really colored the city's reputation. So there was concern. Now, when I say concern, as far as the Secret Service and others were concerned, we're talking concern about a potential demonstration, mm. not, not necessarily considering the, the possibility of someone with a rifle shooting from a from a building. And so uh, as Kennedy very often did, he toured in an open top convertible car through a dense urban environment. Uh, he had done so uh, in Miami just uh, just a few weeks or a few days earlier. So it was not uncommon for the president right. to travel as he was that day. It's simply that at that moment, there hadn't been a presidential assassination in 62 years, and so the likelihood of it was not considered particularly feasible, although the Secret Service cer certainly did their job and followed right. all the rules and protocol. Now, if, if I remember right, in addition to driving through town in an open-air car, the route the car was going to take had also been published in advance, so everybody knows where it's coming. Hadn't there been like flyers printed about like calling Kennedy a traitor or something like that? It, with despite all this, though, the Secret Service, they had no heightened alert. They were like, you know what? We're not worried about threatening the president's life. So was that where that was for them? Yeah. You know, you, the flyers you mentioned, they were these little handbills. There were about 5,000 of them printed, and it basically had a mugshot of Kennedy, and it said, wanted for treason. And it right. accused Kennedy of being soft on communism and a very similar advertisement, a full page advertisement ran in that day's Dallas Morning News. It was a paid advertisement uh, and, and it was it said, welcome, Mr. President. But essentially, <laughs> the ad was extremely critical of Kennedy right. and accused him of, of falling down on the job and, and being soft on communism. And so, yeah, there, there were certainly concerns that there might be some kind of demonstration. The I should point out the Secret Service is about yeah. 10 times larger today than it was oh, in yeah. 1963. There <laughs> yeah. were only about 200 agents nationwide and only, I mean, between 30 and 40 protecting the president 24-7. So there's no way those agents could ever secure every building, right. every rooftop, right. every awning. Um, yeah. 200,000 people in Dallas turned out to see the parade that day. And it yeah. it turned out to be an overwhelming welcome that Kennedy was not prepared for. He had spent that 15-minute flight from Fort Worth to Dallas sitting with Fort Worth Congressman Jim Wright, and they were talking about that ad in the Dallas Morning News. And oh, Kennedy, wow. Kennedy was just, it, it, he could not believe that, that kind of, um, 
anger existed yeah. in a place like Dallas. And allegedly yeah. he had he had said to Mrs. Kennedy that morning or said to one of his aides, you know, we're heading into nut country today. That's a, a quote that's been attributed to Kennedy. But the mm -hmm. reality is that this was very much a campaign visit. When, when yep. Kennedy saw about 4,000 people out at Love Field, you know, he knew that things were going to turn out better than he anticipated. And he mm -hmm. was overwhelmed by the welcome. And as they got to Dealey Plaza right out here, as they made yeah. that turn, yeah. Nellie Connolly, the first lady of Texas, wife of the governor, she said the last thing Kennedy ever heard, which was, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. Mm. And and it was immediately after that that the uh, shots were fired. So JFK, he's cruising through the streets of Dallas, sharing a car with the governor of Texas and all these people cheering and waving at him, as you say, like even better than he expected. You, you can't say that they don't love you. And then his car turns into Dealey Plaza. If you wouldn't mind, describe that scene. What does Dealey Plaza look like? And then what happened in Dealey Plaza? Yeah, Dealey Plaza is this kind of quaint vehicular park. It's really the gateway to downtown Dallas where the streets converge and go underneath this railroad overpass. Um, many people around the world, even if you've never been to Dallas, they're familiar with the landscape of Dealey Plaza simply through films and photographs. Yeah. But uh, it's it's a much smaller, more intimate space than it seems mm -hmm. in photographs. And really, it was the end of the official parade. They had gone from the airport all the way through mm -hmm. the canyon of downtown. Um, they needed to traverse through Dealey Plaza, making this kind of strange series of turns from Main Street, the main thoroughfare they had traveled through downtown on. They, they used Houston Street to cut over to Elm. They needed to be on Elm Street in order yeah. to get on the freeway to the luncheon site. So really passing through Dealey Plaza was it. Then they were on the freeway to the scheduled luncheon and the parade was over. So it was in the last seconds, literally the last seconds of the parade that these shots were fired. So the car makes this turn from Houston onto Elm Street, yeah. slowing down. It's kind of a hairpin turn. Yeah. And as they're traveling down Elm Street, this gentle downhill curve towards the freeway. Grass uh, on these, the sides, grassy fields yeah, around yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, these shots ring out. Now, how many shots were fired all depends upon your belief mm. as far as mm. Lee Harvey Oswald or the possibility of a conspiracy. The official government conclusion was that three shots were fired, one shot missing the car, one shot very controversially going through both President Kennedy and continuing on to injure Governor John Connolly, a mm. non-fatal wound to the president's neck. And then, mm. of course, the uh, the third shot, the fatal shot that struck the president in the head and and killed him. And um, the Secret Service, um, a Secret Service agent, Clint Hill, immediately jumped on the back of the presidential limousine, shielding President Mrs. Kennedy, and they raced at speeds of about 85 miles an hour down to Parkland Hospital. And they were in that emergency entrance to Parkland Hospital within about five or six minutes of the Man. shooting in Dealey Plaza. So the president's motorcade, it's speeding away. Less than 90 yards behind it from where he was shot is the Texas Book Depository. And on the sixth floor of that, the floor that's now your museum, a man named Lee Harvey Oswald ditched a rifle and made for the exit. Who was Lee Harvey Oswald and why did he want to kill Kennedy? 
Well, that is a great question. It's been with us for 60 years, and I'm not sure if I can answer it succinctly <laughs> today. I will yeah. do my best. I, I do I do say we, we use the term alleged assassin or accused assassin okay. because our museum does not actually take a position on the assassination. We don't say definitively that Lee Harvey Oswald shot President Kennedy. Uh, we recognize that there are lingering questions about the assassination. More than 60% of the American public believe there was a conspiracy in the assassination. So we kind of, we explore possibilities, but we don't state any definitive, um, make any definitive statements as far as Oswald's guilt. But as, as far as who Oswald was, he was this young man. He had just turned 24 years old. He had grown up in New Orleans, had kind of been a loner as a kid, joined the Marine Corps, became very, very interested in the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War. Uh, left the Marines and defected to the Soviet Union and stayed there a couple of years, very unsatisfied and disillusioned with life there. Married mm -hmm. a, a Russian woman, Marina Prusikova, and uh, they had a child. And after a year of bureaucratic hurdles, Oswald, Marina, and their, their daughter came back to the United States and settled in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And Oswald kind of bounced from job to job. He was abusive towards Marina. They were separated mm. at the time of the assassination. And, um, you know, he got a job in this building making $1.25 an hour as an order filler. This building, the Texas School Book Depository, being a distribution hub for school textbooks. So Oswald would essentially, his job was to go up to the upper floors with a clipboard and get boxes mm. of math books, science books, and bring them back down to the loading dock on the ground floor. Mm. Work that he considered to be very menial, and um, and he, he felt like he was intellectually far above that. Mm. On the day of the assassination, having spent the night with Marina at a friend's home in Irving, he gets a ride to work and he brings with him this package wrapped in brown paper. And so walking into this building that morning, this is a guy who's 24 years old in the midst of a disintegrating marriage and a confused mm. political ideology. And he's got a package wrapped in brown paper. And so, you know, for some people, it's as simple as that. We One of my favorite artifacts on the sixth floor is yeah. Oswald's wedding ring. And it holds such symbolic significance for some because he had begged Marina to get back together with him the night before the assassination. And she, while intending to eventually, was not ready. And so she rebuffed mm. him multiple times. And he went to bed angry. And the next yeah. morning, he left that wedding ring behind. He left it behind wow. for the first time in a teacup with most of their savings on the nightstand. And so for a lot of people, you know, this is the act of a man who knows he's not coming home again. And, you know, mm. it, it's it's amazing to imagine, and this is at the heart of most conspiracy theories, it's, a, it's amazing to imagine that this man, simply because he couldn't reconcile with his wife, decides mm. to take drastic action that affects the... Second right. half of the 20th century in unique and profound ways. I mean, that's such a frightening prospect that one person can have such monumental change that certainly something larger, grander, a conspiracy helps us to simply make sense of that worldview. And so right. Uh, right. in the end, I can't tell you exactly who Lee Harvey Oswald was or what was going <laughs> through his mind that day, but that's that's the insight I can provide, I guess. Well, thank you very much. And let's jump back to Kennedy, and we'll be back to Oswald in a second. So Kennedy, he was shot twice, as you said, upper back, once through the skull. Was there ever any hope of saving him, or was this an immediately fatal wound? 
Oh, uh, absolutely fatal. Even by today's uh, with with today's medical technology, that it would it was fatal. It would still be fatal today. Uh, essentially, uh, the right rear portion of the president's head was blasted outward. He, he lost quite a bit of brain tissue. Um, yeah. he, when he arrived at the hospital, he still had a heartbeat. He had what's called agonal respiration, which is simply mechanical breathing. He was going wow. through the processes of sh- his body shutting down. They worked on him for upwards of half an hour, although it was a futile effort. They pronounced him dead at, at one o'clock. I've had the chance to talk to a number of medical personnel, both from the 60s and today, and I always yeah. ask that question with yeah. the advances that have been made in medicine right. and, and technology and life-saving equipment. Was Would there be a chance? And unequivocally, all these people say, yeah. absolutely not. Such a devastating, traumatic head injury then and now is absolutely fatal. Thank you. And so you'd said before, this was the first presidential assassination in 62 years, not since 1901. The first assassination since the invention of TV and radio. So how was what was unfolding in Dallas reported across the country? And what was the national reaction? And and how is this a shared experience in a way that nothing had been before like this? Yeah, a- absolutely. It was definitely a collective experience. And for baby boomers, this really was the moment that defined their generation. Mm-hmm. And it was because of that commonality of experience. Uh, at our museum, we have this ongoing oral history project that we've been doing yeah. for many years. We've recorded about 2,500 interviews with people from all around the world sharing their memories. And it has been remarkable uh, for me doing these interviews over the last 20 years to have, you know, 1960s school children in California having almost an identical experience to students in New York, to students in Mexico City, to students in London. It's it's really remarkable. The word spread so fast. Here in Dallas, they broke into local uh, television on the on the mm-hmm. ABC affiliate WFAA within 15 minutes of the assassination, instantly putting two eyewitnesses on the air describing exactly wow. what they had seen. Um, the uh, initial wire report was out within moments of the assassination. And that's incidentally where we get the term grassy knoll that's become so much a part of our our culture. Um, The United Press International reporter that broke the story, the first one to get word out about the assassination was their White House correspondent, Merriman Smith. And in his initial bulletin, he talks about people running up a grassy knoll nearby. Now, what prompted Merriman Smith to identify a very gentle grassy slope leading up to a stockade fence as a grassy knoll. I have no idea what, what caused him in his speeding car as he's racing uh, to Parkland hospital, what prompted him to use that terminology, but he didn't realize it, but he was becoming part of the history of this subject by creating that term grassy knoll, which is how we identify that, that particular spot uh, that's become so controversial. That is what. So, so all around the world, all around the country, people are learning this pretty much within minutes, roughly the same time. Meanwhile, in central Dallas, a manhunt begins. It takes less than 90 minutes after Kennedy is shot for Oswald to be arrested. What led the police to Oswald so quickly and, and where was he captured? Yeah, so Oswald left the building within just a few minutes of the assassination. He was first seen about 90 seconds after the last shot was fired on the second floor in the lunchroom. But he was identified as an employee and was 
was let go, walked out the front door before the building was sealed off, and made his way to his rooming house, which is in the Oak Cliff section of Dallas. There at the rooming house, he got a pistol and a jacket and set out on foot, and it was... um, a short distance away that a Dallas police officer named J.D. Tippett was shot and killed, allegedly by Oswald, mm-hmm. near the corner of uh, 10th and Patton Streets. And that's what really brought a major police presence to that part of Dallas was because mm-hmm. one of their own had suddenly been been shot and killed. And and officer shootings were, were not at all commonplace. I mean, that would have been mm-hmm. a major, major story, news story in 1963, had it not been for the president being right. assassinated in Dealey Plaza. So police converge on that area and radio reports are going out about the shooting of the police officer. Oswald is walking along this street called Jefferson Boulevard in Oak Cliff. Mm -hmm. And it's this shoe store manager, a guy named Johnny Calvin Brewer, who sees Oswald kind of ducking in and out of the alcoves of stores, Mm -hmm. particularly when cop cars would drive by. And he was just acting suspicious. So Brewer follows Oswald down Jefferson. He he sneaks into the Texas theater, this movie theater, while the ticket takers distracted by a police car. And uh, and Brewer tells the ticket taker, Julie Postal, to call the police and the police come to the theater brewer goes up on stage points oswald out and this officer nick mcdonald makes his way towards oswald and um, at that moment this is according to eyewitness accounts uh, there's no film of this but oswald apparently stands up um, says this is it and he punches mcdonald in the face and pulls that gun out and uh, according to mcdonald actually pulled the trigger but mcdonald slammed his hand on top of the gun preventing the firing pen from from oh wow Activating, saving his life. Otherwise, it's possible McDonald would have been killed as well that day. Police yeah. then jump over the seats, and uh, one officer pulled a muscle coming over the seats trying to wrestle with Oswald. They handcuff him. Oswald screams out police brutality, and, <laughs> and the handcuffs are too tight. They bring him out of the theater shove him in a police car and off he goes. He's now the prime suspect in the murder of Officer Tippett. He gets back to Dallas Police Headquarters where they're looking for the employee that didn't show up for the roll call at the Texas School Book Depository. And lo and behold, the Dallas police suddenly have uh, the missing guy uh, within 90 minutes of the Kennedy assassination. Oswald is their prime suspect. He's charged, officially charged with the murder of Tippett later that evening and in the early hours of saturday he's charged with the murder of president kennedy so oswald's captured he's booked by the police they begin to question him but the thing nobody knew was that oswald had less than 48 hours to live what happened to oswald yeah the story just gets stranger and stranger (laughs) um you know oswald is interrogated uh extensively always denies that he shot anybody. He does not take any responsibility for the shooting of the police officer, the shooting for, of the president or governor. He very famously comments in the hallway, I'm just a patsy, you know, indicating that he's been set up. Mm-hmm. Um, but he maintains his innocence. And then Sunday, they're... The Dallas police, as as is procedure, they're transferring him from city custody to Dallas County custody, basically the police to the sheriff's department. This is a routine prisoner transfer if it's anything but routine because 200 members of the world press are covering this story. Right. And the Dallas police, in part because of that reputation Dallas had gotten and all these rumors that Oswald was being beaten in police custody, in large part wow. because of that, the chief yeah. of police felt the need to make that transfer very possible 
public. And so he actually alerted reporters to the approximate time when they were going to be transferring Oswald. And so there were cameras. There was one camera, NBC, live in the basement. And all of a sudden, on live television, this local nightclub owner named Jack Ruby just steps out and into history and uh, shoots Oswald. And he dies at Parkland Hospital, same hospital where Kennedy died. Oh, my God. Yeah. Treated by some of the same doctors that had treated President Kennedy. And he dies uh, at 1.07 p.m. on uh, on Sunday. As you say, the story just gets stranger and stranger. Who Now, who was Jack Ruby and why did he want to kill Oswald? Yeah, Jack Ruby um, was, uh, was just kind of a... A, a local guy, a local character, very <laughs> colorful character. Yeah. Um, he he owned a, a nightclub here in Dallas. He had grown up in Chicago, did have some low-level ties to organized crime go, growing up in Chicago, um, was sort of what you might call mob adjacent as an adult. Mm. He certainly liked mm. to give people the impression that he was, uh, mm. you know, a wise guy and uh, was friendly with people who had ties to organized crime. Now, whether or not there's any conspiratorial shenanigans going on there is in the eye of the beholder. But I mean, there's no concrete proof that Ruby was in any way sent by someone to silence Oswald or anything like that. What, what Ruby said was that, you know, he loved president Kennedy and he just couldn't stand the thought of Jackie Kennedy maybe having to come back to Dallas to testify at a trial. And so caught up in the emotion of the moment, he just he just shoots Oswald. Ruby carried a gun. It was a gun that was actually bought for him by a Dallas police officer years <laughs> earlier to save Ruby from having to pay sales tax. And so he shoots Oswald. And, you know, I, in, according to people who knew Ruby, they yeah. think that, you know, Ruby thought he'd be a hero. Ruby always wanted mm-hmm. to be a hero. Mm-hmm. And they thought mm-hmm. he would be the guy who killed the guy who killed President Kennedy. And you know, his his defense attorney, Melvin Belli, decided to go with an insanity defense and, and mm. got some medical experts to, to testify that Ruby suffered from a very rare type of epilepsy called mm. psychomotor epilepsy and that he could go into these fugue states where he wasn't really aware of his actions and he essentially operated like an automaton. And, and so they used that defense. And in a very, very short time, the jury found Ruby guilty of murder with malice. And uh, Ruby was given the death penalty, but he was not executed. That verdict in the trial was overturned on appeal. And Ruby was going to have a new trial uh, in a different city outside of Dallas. But he uh, uh, developed pneumonia, went to Parkland Hospital. It all all happens at Parkland Hospital. And Mm -hmm. Ruby dies of advanced cancer. He never leaves parkland because the doctors discover cancer has riddled his body and he dies january 3rd 1967 and to his death although he wow. made some cryptic comments about there being more to the story on his deathbed he he tells his brother earl that you know he was not involved in any conspiracy wild what impact did this assassination have on the united states and, and all the craziness around it in what ways was the United States a different country after from what it had been before? That is a that is a amazing and, and very big question. And <laughs> I, I guess the easiest way to answer it is to look back at the sixties experience through the eyes of those who came of age during that that time period. For so many people, and and you know, this is an oversimplification of a very complex decade in American history, but the popular perception is that 
these shots in Dealey Plaza ushered in the violence and the skepticism that permeated that 1960 experience with the escalation of the Vietnam War, with civil rights violence, with additional assassinations, Malcolm X, uh, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy. In fact, I mean, you could almost bookend the 60s experience with the deaths of John F. Kennedy in 1963 and then Bobby Kennedy and King in 68. And for a lot of people, it it changed everything. I hear so often, so often in these oral histories, it was the end of innocence. It was when everything changed. It was the beginning of the 60s. So, Mm. yeah, I mean, as far as a cultural impact, uh, it was second only perhaps to uh, Mm. 9-11 in terms of of worldwide impact. And it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine that the death of one man uh, could be comparable in any way to the deaths of thousands of people on September 11th. But really, in terms of the outpouring of grief and the, the fundamental shift kind of in American thought and culture, um, absolutely, the Kennedy assassination was one of the defining moments that is right up there with, you know, the bombing of Pearl Harbor as far as these these moments that, that yeah. punctuate a generation and provide these cultural touchstones that allow us to better understand that moment in its memory. Seven days after the assassination, Lyndon Baines Johnson, now president, created a commission to investigate what had happened. Uh, Conspiracies had already started to swirl, like immediately. Maybe the Russians were behind it. Maybe the Cubans were behind it. And Johnson feared that public emotion could lead in some way to pressures for a war. So can you tell me a bit about what was this famous commission called and who were some of the key people on it? What did it find? What's the story of this commission? Yeah, so that 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 group is known as the Warren Commission because it was chaired by the Supreme Justice uh, or the uh, Supreme Justice of the United States, Earl Warren, and it was made up of a, a bipartisan group of, of senators and and representatives, including um, future President Gerald yeah. R. Ford, who was a congressman yeah. at the time. It also included a former CIA director, Alan Dulles, uh, mm-hmm. John McCloy, who was a former president of the World Bank, and and this this was kind of a blue ribbon panel appointed by Johnson to reassure the American people what what actually happened in terms of the assassination of President Kennedy. Because as you say, I mean, we're at the height of the Cold War, so there's a great deal of concern that, you know, the Russians or the Cubans especially are yeah. responsible. This is really kind of before the mafia and the CIA and the FBI, those conspiracy theories, those would take root about a decade or so later when we find out more about what was going on with these uh, covert operations and abuses by our intelligence agencies. But really at the time, the main concern was that it was, you know, the communists that, right. that they that they killed President Kennedy. So the Warren Commission, using the FBI as their investigative arm, they mm. interview hundreds of take depositions or or testimony from hundreds of people gather something like 3,000 exhibits and ultimately in September of 1964 delivered to Johnson about a 900-page report along with 26 volumes of hearings and evidence. And their conclusion is that they were not able to find any evidence of a conspiracy. Oswald likely acted alone. Jack Ruby acted alone. There was no conspiracy. The thing is, is that it, as we mentioned earlier, it's a deeply unsatisfying explanation. And mm-hmm. once people began to get access to these 26 volumes of evidence and, and testimony, 
almost immediately you have a growing number of, of researchers who are beginning to poke holes in the official story and mm-hmm. point out discrepancies, uh, inconsistencies, testimony that should have been taken that, that, that wasn't gathered at the time, and, you know, lingering legitimate questions about the assassination. And so, really, according to Gallup, there's never been a moment since 1963 when at least 50% of the American public did not believe in a conspiracy. At different times in our history, in the 70s with Watergate and these congressional investigations, the number got up to about 81%. After the Oliver Stone film in the 90s, 81%. But but yeah, there's never been a moment when less than 50%. The last one I remember maybe about 10 years ago had that about 60% of the American public still believed that there was a conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination. And a lot of that, I mean, the, the... the, the core of that story begins with the Warren Commission investigation and the um, the problems and controversies surrounding what they what they knew and what they didn't know. Yeah. And, and it's so fascinating because that commission, their report comes out September 24th, 1964. And almost immediately, you know, the conspiracy continues to sprout. I think there were two or three congressional investigative committees later times, the Stone movie. As recently as this fall, I saw one of Kennedy's Secret Service agents who was there that day questioning the official record in the news. Uh, I think he put out a new book saying minor details didn't match his memory, uh, although his memory also didn't match his testimony either. So, you know, what's that say? Why, though? Why do you think, aside from this, it, you don't want to, like, assume that one person can have so much influence, or is maybe that all to it, why does this assassination attract so many doubts and conspiracy theories in ways that other presidential ones don't. You know, nobody's getting up in arms about the guy who killed McKinley or the guy who shot Garfield or the guy who, you know, tried to shoot Teddy Roosevelt or tried to shoot Franklin Roosevelt. You know, why does this one get such conspiracy attention? Yeah, there are a couple of reasons. For one thing, the presidential assassinations you just mentioned, Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley, in each of those cases, the assassin took great pride in what they considered their act of patriotism and took ownership of Mm. the shooting itself, where Mm -hmm. we have Oswald very much out of character for a political or presidential assassin, basically saying, uh, you know, I didn't shoot anybody, I'm innocent. Another thing is, you know, as you mentioned, this being the first presidential assassination in the television age, we have so much uh, AV material. I mean, we have, there were four home movie cameras running at the moment of the fatal shot, most famously the Abraham Zapruder film, and that provides so much audiovisual evidence for researchers to pour over, and it is so tantalizing to look at those dark shadows atop the grassy knoll and try to right. point out shapes or smoke or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to see, whatever validates your worldview is, is going to be there behind that, that fence on the grassy knoll. But, but also, I mean, there are legitimate questions. There are reasonable areas of exploration that researchers have brought to light. I mean, just off the top of my head, for example, um, the president's head wound. There's there's this disagreement about the actual placement of that wound because there's mm. disagreement between what the doctors in Dallas observed that day in the trauma room and yeah. what the doctors doing the autopsy at Bethesda Naval Center in Maryland uh, saw. Mm-hmm. And and wow. and so and and these are key distinctions that might give us an indication of whether a shot was fired from behind the school book mm-hmm. depository or in front the uh the grassy knoll. And so, you know, p- part of that 
speaks to the way the evidence was handled after the assassination, right down to the, the president's remains. You know, by Texas state law, Kennedy should have received an autopsy here in Dallas, and a forensic mm. pathologist, Earl Rose, was prepared to do that autopsy. He did the autopsies on uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and later mm-hmm. Jack Ruby. Oh, um, wow. but 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 interestingly. Lyndon Johnson, who was always a very shrewd politician, recognized, you know, that this could be uh, some kind of plot. He wanted to get back to Washington, but he also recognized how bad it would look for Johnson to leave his home state of Texas and leave behind the president's grieving widow and the president in Mm -hmm. Dallas. And so he wanted Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy would not leave without the body of her husband. So the Mm -hmm. Secret Service, Mm -hmm. by force literally by force, take that body from Parkland Hospital. I mean, by many accounts, there was a shoving, pushing and shoving match trying to keep the president's body in Dallas. And the Secret Service took it to Washington. But because of that, because of the movement of the president's remains, we have an inconsistency between the observation of the wounds and problems that took place during the autopsy, even the handling of the Mandica Carcano weapon. I mean, it was in the hands of the Dallas police till the FBI took it, sent it up to their lab, not able to find any prints on it. It comes back to Dallas and suddenly there's a pull. Is that the rifle you're referring to? A rifle? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the Mandiker Kirkano rifle that was found here in the Texas School Book Depository and traced to Oswald. There are questions about how Oswald's palm print got on the weapon, in part because that weapon was moved across state lines, taken up to D.C. and sent back to Dallas. It wasn't a federal crime in 1963 to murder the president. And so actually, yeah, it's true. This, this, so this this was a local homicide under right. the jurisdiction of the Dallas Police Department. Right. Amazingly so. The FBI yeah. very quickly stepped in, particularly after yeah. Jack Ruby shot Oswald in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. The yeah. FBI took over that investigation. Yeah. But but still, just because of handling the way evidence was handled, because mm-hmm. of the audiovisual material that exists, just because of the the very nature of this this labyrinth, this rabbit hole that you can go right. down and explore all these unique facets and the fact that you have this colorful cast of characters, you know, anybody who was an enemy of John F. Kennedy becomes a suspect. Right. Um, it just it fuels this belief that there's got to be more to the story than a disgruntled ex-Marine Mm-hmm. with a rifle in a building. It, there's just got to be more to the story than that. And so you have essentially an entire conspiracy culture that yes, originates yes, here at Dealey yeah. Plaza that you can draw a straight line right to the present day to the to the culture that surrounds us. Do, actually, would this be one of the legacies of this? One of the ways the country is different before and after? Is it more conspiratorial? Is it more suspicious and distrusting after? I, I do think so. I mean, it, it's an oversimplification. To, to, I mean, I, I have to say yeah. ten, about 10 years after the assassination, when yeah. congressional investigations uncovered abuses by the CIA, uh, for sure. example, that the CIA had tried to kill Fidel Castro and used organized crime to help them do it. Right. There began there began to be in the aftermath of Watergate and the Vietnam War, this growing mistrust of the of the government. Nah, and it's yeah, really yeah. easy to then look in that rearview yeah. mirror and see the death of John F. Kennedy and Dealey Plaza yeah, yeah, and yeah. connect those dots. And so, yeah, I do think with that, particularly in the 70s, you have this yeah. growing culture of conspiracy, the idea that the government's not telling us everything. The government's classified all these documents. They're not telling us the truth. 
yeah, I do think that you can point to the Kennedy assassination as an as an as an origin story of of that conspiracy culture that that permeates our society today. Yeah, I mean, among the things that get exposed by those committees is the CIA was experimenting with like LSD on prison inmates without their like there was some really crazy stuff that otherwise you'd be like that's insane. So you can see how that would make people more open to conspiracy theories. Um, was there any attempt at gun control? after the assassination. Yeah, that that didn't particularly come up. They were more focused on enhancing presidential security, increasing the budget of the Secret Service in order to um, provide better protection to the president. The car that Kennedy was riding in that day was stripped down to its metal frame and rebuilt with titanium doors and a permanent Mm. hard shell bulletproof top. Yeah. there were changes made, for example, a couple of years later, Congress made it uh, a federal crime to kidnap, <laughs> attempt to murder or murder the president or vice president of the United That'll States. That'll stop them. So, so there were certainly those kinds of changes. But no, yeah. I mean, you know, we think we've become so desensitized to gun violence today with, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. All, the, all the types of – but this was such a – isolated incident and the fact that it occurred to the, with the president, it was – we were still a couple of years away from, from – one of the first big mass shootings, the UT Tower shooting by Charles mm. Whitman that that, yeah, that yeah. killed, I think, over a dozen people. We were yeah. still a little ways from that. But the idea that somebody shot the president, I think, did not prompt immediate calls for, for gun control, no. Interesting. What do you think is the ultimate legacy of November 22nd, 1963? The ultimate legacy? Well, you know, I look at it in terms of, of this site and the story that, that our museum tells. You know, Dealey Plaza has become, for so many people, this sacred space, this site of necessary pilgrimage that is uh, part of the landscape of violence in this country. You know, whether you're looking at Pearl Harbor or the Lorraine Motel where Dr. King was killed, the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City or the footprint of the World Trade Center, Dealey Plaza stands as one of these sites stained by violence and tragedy that allow us in the crucible of this event to 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 do justice to a tragic event by remembering mm-hmm. it properly. I, I think that the assassination impacted people in deeply personal ways, I find this all the time, that people were inspired by assassination news coverage to become journalists, or they were mm. prompted to become researchers and investigators simply because they felt like something was taken from them that day. They feel broken, and they want to find a truth that they can subscribe to. And so it becomes a passion, giving up their lives and careers and families to pursue this 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 material, this story. I I think it's interesting to look at the personal legacy of the assassination as far as Mm -hmm. the impact it's had on people around the world, and also the fact that it it simply did define a generation and really change change 20th century history. There's there's a reason why the Kennedy assassination turns up a lot in science fiction. (laughs) And you have have time travel stories where, where people go back to try to change the past, and always you get a glimpse of of what the future might have been. And right. that's that's right. what's here. That is yeah. that is one of the reasons why Dealey Plaza is such sacred space because it kind of holds all of that unfulfilled hope and promise that John F. Kennedy represented. Everything that was changed and snuffed out on November 22nd, 1963 and people wander the street here every day looking in the grass as if the answer is still here, but it's permeated by that sense that something changed. 
something yeah. changed and won't ever be the same again. Well said. And, and it is very true. If you're going to travel in science fiction, you're probably either going to kill Hitler or save Kennedy. It's probably going to be one of those two missions. Before I let you go, I just want to say uh, I used to live in Texas. I've been to the Sixth Floor Museum. It is fantastic. I'd highly encourage all my listeners to check it out. Would you mind telling them what they'll find if they uh, visit? Absolutely. So our museum is in the former Texas School Book Depository building. We have a, a core exhibit on the sixth floor that really explores the life, death, and legacy of President Kennedy and a little bit of the broader history and culture of the 1960s. We have a, a seventh floor gallery above the sixth floor that changes. We have changing exhibits. Um, in November, we're going to be opening up a new exhibit that really explores in some detail that two-day trip to Texas and the reasons mm. for it and and the people mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that saw Kennedy during those two days. That'll be up through uh, next summer, and then we'll have uh, different exhibits. It, the seventh floor allows us to bring in changing shows, yeah. uh, traveling exhibits, things like that, and look at the broader story of the 60s, explore topics mm. like civil rights and the, the Peace Corps and Vietnam and the space program and all of those components of the Kennedy legacy that, that people, you know, look to the assassination as the moment where, where things began to change and evolve. If you've enjoyed this interview with Stephen and want to learn more about the JFK assassination, you can pick up his book. He's written a book on this, Assassination and Commemoration, JFK, Dallas, and the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza. I also highly encourage you to visit the Sixth Floor Museum on Dealey Plaza, your next visit to Dallas, and you can visit the museum online at jfk.org. Thank you for your time, Stephen. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on your platform of choice. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, imagine rising from humble beginnings in East Boston to become one of the richest men in the country, and then using that wealth to put your son in the White House, only for a tragic stroke to silence you and trap you in that silence in your twilight years as two of your sons are taken from you by assassins' bullets. We will talk to David Nassau, author of The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy, about the Shakespearean tragedy that is Joe Kennedy Sr. That's coming up next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.